This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, it's Ben Mathis here with just a quick favor to ask. We love having great advertisers support the show, but in order to continue doing that, we need your help. So please go to podsurvey.com kick and take a quick anonymous survey that'll help us get to know you a little better. That way we can show advertisers just how enthusiastic our audience is about kick-ass news and keep the show free for listeners like you. Even if you've taken our podcast listener survey before, the current one is new and different, and it's really important that we have lots of listener feedback, so I'd really appreciate it if you take a minute to fill out this new one. Plus, as a thank you, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash kick, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y dot com slash kick. Also, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes. Even if you usually listen to the show on some other app like SoundCloud or Spotify, the most important thing for any podcast like ours is our iTunes rating, which is entirely dependent on our listeners subscribing on iTunes. So just go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, look up Kick-Ass News, and click subscribe. It's that simple. And if you've already subscribed on iTunes, consider taking a moment to rate and review Kick-Ass News while you're there. Thanks for listening and continuing to support the show. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. You know, folks, I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but I was just about the last person to get on the Breaking Bad bandwagon. There's no particular reason. I mean, I do kind of get freaked out by movies and TV shows that have a lot of drug use, like train spotting or traffic. That stuff just weirds me out a little bit, but it's not even that. I guess what it is, is I just couldn't picture myself relating to a TV show about a high school chemistry teacher turned drug kingpin. It didn't sound like my cup of tea. But when a show literally has everyone you know talking and people as diverse as Rush Limbaugh and Michael Moore or Warren Buffett and Anthony Hopkins in agreement and acting like giddy fanboys, it's more than just good television. It's a cultural phenomenon. So finally, a year or two after the final episode of Breaking Bad aired, I decided to watch the first episode. And one episode led to a second one and then a third. And before I knew it, I was staying up way too late, binge-watching all five seasons over the course of a week, as addicted to the problems of Walter White as his clients were to his signature blue meth. A huge part of the credit for my loss of sleep that week goes to the man who played Walter White so brilliantly, actor Brian Cranston. During his five seasons on Breaking Bad, he won six Emmys, including four for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series, as well as two Golden Globes, three SAG Awards, and two Peabody Awards for the show. Prior to that, Brian Cranston was no stranger to television audiences, having earned Emmy and Golden Globe nominations for his seven seasons as Hal on the hit comedy series Malcolm in the Middle. Some of his other BBB credits, or before Breaking Bad, include memorable roles in movies like Saving Private Ryan and Little Miss Sunshine, and TV shows like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, X-Files, Babylon 5, How I Met Your Mother, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the HBO miniseries From Earth to the Moon, and of course, his recurring role as the dentist Tim Watley on Seinfeld. Since the final season of Breaking Bad ended, he's received an Oscar nomination for his starring role as the blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, a Tony Award for his portrayal of President Lyndon Johnson in the Broadway play All the Way, as well as two more Emmy nominations when he reprised his role as LBJ in the HBO film of All the Way. He recently took a break to write about his career and his extraordinary life in a memoir titled A Life in Parts. And today, Brian Cranston joins me on the podcast to talk about his remarkable path and some of the lessons he's learned along the way. He discusses his complicated relationships with his parents and how watching his father struggle in Hollywood made him reluctant to follow in his dad's footsteps. He shares his memories of a two-year road trip that changed his life, the epiphany on that journey that inspired him to become an actor, and some of his adventures along the way, including working as a carny and the time he went from restaurant server to murder suspect. He talks about getting a crash course in comedy from Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, 
landing the role of a lifetime on Breaking Bad, and how he built one of the most iconic characters in the history of television. Brian Cranston also gives some sage advice for aspiring actors and reveals the ways his life has changed since he first donned Walter White's famous pork pie hat. Plus, how to properly kill a chicken, the secret to wearing bees, and why he loves making small talk with old people. Coming up with Brian Cranston in just a moment. Today I'm joined by actor Brian Cranston. He won four Emmy Awards for his now iconic role as Walter White in the television series Breaking Bad, as well as a Tony Award for his portrayal of Lyndon Johnson in the Broadway play All the Way, and an Oscar nomination for his role in Trumbo. He's written a memoir titled A Life in Parts, which is now available in paperback. Brian Cranston, thanks for coming on the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks. Well, this book is just completely crazy. I mean, the life that you've led, even before acting, probably is worth two books alone right there. <laughs> um, your road to acting was somewhat circuitous. You, you tried out many different hats before deciding on a career path. How much of your hesitancy about going into acting was a rebellion or at least a response to the fact that your dad was an actor in Hollywood? I wasn't really that. I mean, there, I, I went through a, a very challenging period as a as a young uh, kid. And when when I was eleven, I started seeing my dad less and less. And by twelve, he was completely gone. He left the family, and I didn't see him again until I was twenty two. Um, my mother was extremely hurt by that, and kind of went off in her own way, emotionally mm -hmm. detaching drinking a lot, and uh, that really scared me. Is up until that point, I thought, okay, this is, this is I, I'm starting to grasp what my life is like, and my parents are here, and they were both very active people. Team moms, PTA, coaching, they were always the parents there, hands-on. My mom would make my own uh, Halloween costumes and things, so it was very active, and then nothing. Wow, just dropped off. It dropped off wow. a cliff, so it felt, uh, it, it frightened me. Mm -hmm. And so all through middle school and high school, I was an introvert. I was very shy. I was a wallflower. There's not many people from those schools, um, Columbus Junior High School and Canoga Park High School here in the San Fernando Valley, uh, that would remember me. Really? Be you know, because I, I was exceedingly shy and, and very insecure uh, for obvious reasons. And so it took a while for me to come around and figure out what it is I wanted to do, how to speak up and use my voice and find what I think every human being is in search of, and that is empowerment. What is the thing, whether it's a profession or avocation or something, that that empowers you as a human being? What, what, is, what makes you feel joyous? Like you said, your dad wasn't around, your mom was drinking, and apparently also became sort of a hoarder, right? So you now have this total aversion to any kind of clutter or hoarding. Huh? Yeah, it was um, one of the things. My parents were both children during the Depression, so mm -hmm. they were of the ilk that kept things. Oh, yeah. Because you never knew if you were going to need it later on, mm -hmm. so keep everything. Huh. So we had stacks and stacks of boxes and things everywhere and uh, to try to eke out a living once my dad left my mom would pack up all our stuff and we would load it up in the car and she and my brother who was two and a half years older and my little sister who's seven years younger we would cram into the car and we would go to swap meets <laughs> and we would sell all the things we could and and Little by little, the house started to shrink because we were selling clothing and furniture and pillows and bedding and, you know, and it just got down to the bare minimum. And um, so we were living in, in that world for a long time. And my mom would go out and buy other people's junk and then resell that. So we were 
it, it was kind of a an uncomfortable situation to to live in. <laughs> sure, you know, and, physically and emotionally. Yeah. I suppose. And eventually, yeah. uh, the bank took back our house, and we were kicked out. My brother and I, who were, he was fourteen and a half, he we were shipped off to live with our grandparents for a year. Yeah, you lived in what is it, Ukaipa? Ukaipa, California. Yeah, Apple yeah. Country, right? It is. It is, and it's a, it's it's a pretty pretty area. It's in the San Bernardino County in the hills, and their particular house was up on a place called Oak Glen Road, and and uh, it was about three thousand feet elevation, and would get a dusting of snow every, uh, every year, <laughs> and sometimes more than others, and and uh, so it was a, an adventure for two kids from Los Angeles. I think you learned how to kill chickens, right? I Among other indeed. things. <laughs> I know how to kill a chicken, my friend. Do they really run around after you cut their head off? They do. Their their <laughs> central nervous system is peaked, and uh, as as one would imagine. And uh, yeah, I, I learned the, the hard way doing that. But, you know, I, I look back on it, and when I was writing the stories in the book, um, I relived those moments. And some of the moments are very uh, um, rewarding, and and I, I look back on them with with uh, uh, loving thoughts. And others are horrifying, <laughs> and and I'm glad I don't have to live that way anymore. Well, yeah, because I read the original book when it came out, uh, I guess about a year ago, huh? and then before this interview, I listened to the audio version of it, and oh. I wonder. When you're recording the audio book, is that particularly emotional when you have to actually read the words and speak it? It wasn't as emotional as it was writing it, mm -hmm. because when you're actually crafting it to write, um, you must be willing, and, and as an actor, I am willing to dive back into whatever emotion is necessary to tell the story, mm -hmm. to live, to relive that moment. And for me, being a novice writer, I didn't think that Brian Cranston had the ability to just automatically know what to do. So I really felt, well, the only way I know how to approach this is as an actor would. So mm -hmm. let me throw myself in and and get emotional uh, and and be very susceptible and vulnerable in many cases. And the stories in the book reveal some, as you know, some kind of harrowing experiences. Yeah. I mean, you've had a hell of a life. I mean, yeah, it's interesting because I guess before you even thought about becoming an actor, you were originally studying to go into law enforcement. Is that right? That's right. I think it's a, it was a reactionary move to my brother being a part of the L.A. Police Explorer Group. Mm -hmm. It's a branch of the Boy Scouts. And why he joined that, I don't know. Except maybe, he, I think he might have, in retrospect, he might have been, I don't know, attracted to the uh, a very powerful male figure, a father figure that, that we didn't have in our lives. Mm -hmm. And um, so he joined this group, and part of the requirements of this is that you had to go to the LAPD Academy and study eight Saturdays in a row, and then you graduate into the Explorer program. And our West Valley division was exceptional. We always had the top ranking because they worked us hard. They really, we I'll worked bet. extra hours. <laughs> sure they no worked joke. us hard. And uh, I followed in my brother's footsteps that way and joined mm -hmm. the Police Explorers as well when I was 16 and, and found out that I had an aptitude for it, which I didn't realize before. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to become a policeman. So, okay. And during that time, you were doing side jobs as a security guy at, I think, grocery stores or something, or pharmacies, something like yeah, that? I was one of those guys in the two-way mirror in a grocery store. <laughs> when you look up and you see that mirror yeah. and you wonder, and I wonder if there's anybody in there actually looking down at me. <laughs> it's that was Branston. me. And I would, answer, I would talk to people, too, while I was up looking through that mirror. And people would look up at, at the mirror, and i go, <laughs> hello. <laughs> but it was easy— it, to catch uh, thieves. It well, they was, were probably the ones looking at the mirror. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Who else looks it, at the, it's, the mirror? It's the, it's, it, was, it was like <laughs> right. plucking candy from a baby. It really yeah, was because really. when people go to shop, they shop. They're not looking around. Yeah. But if someone's <laughs> exactly. going to steal something, 
they look over their shoulder and they look the other way to see if anybody's looking. And then I, it's, it, it's furtive. And I, it catches my attention. And the people stole the most odd objects. Really? I, uh, just like incredible. What? Like um, a half a dozen dog leashes, um, <laughs> light bulbs. Um, some guy stole a whole pineapple. You know, it's like, Really? How, so how did he hide that? He just, you know, stuffed it and kind of crossed his arms really? inside his coat oh my God. to make it feel like he just had his arms crossed. <laughs> and it was incredible. You know, and, and I did have a lot of compassion for those who stole food because they're hungry. Mm-hmm. And um but it's a business and you have to we we caught them and we had to get the police down and write a yeah. report and then try to scare them a little bit and you know. Well, instead of eventually going into the sheriff's department, you have this seminal moment in your life where you and your brother go on this extended easy rider sort of bike tour of the country, sleeping under the stars and in homeless shelters, picking up jobs along the way. Did you ever encounter the Hell's Angels or what was that like? No, it was, you know, we were on motorcycles. It was 1976 when we left California. I had about $117 in my pocket, something like that. But it was easy to get jobs because it wasn't a litigious society back then. It was very mm-hmm. relaxed. Didn't need paperwork. We would go to a, a restaurant, and if it looked like they were understaffed, we'd say, you know, we've bust before. Do you, oh, yeah. Here, I'll give you $20 if you bust these tables for a couple hours. Sure. And then we'd, you know, basically make 10 bucks an hour, which was really good in 1976. And um, and then he'd also feed us. So you'd get the two for one. Deal. It was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd always get, have places to, you can find. We stopped in uh, carnivals and we'd get jobs in carnival. If we saw a carnival. <laughs> really? You always were a carny? Stop. Yeah, we'd stop. I've worked in a, a couple different carnivals. Yeah. Were you a chicken geek? or what, No, no, what no biting heads off chicken. I, I, uh, I was, they call them joints if you're working in the booths. Uh-huh. And um, so I worked in a joint uh, the, where you're popping the balloon with a dart. Yeah. I did that yeah. one. And uh, we also worked in what they call slaw which is a, a carny term. I don't know if they still use it or not, but they it's about uh, taking down the carnival or oh, putting ooh. up the carnival. Uh, okay, it's, that's a hard job. It's, it's a hard job. So yeah. you, you know, you piece by piece, you're breaking it down, putting it on the, the semi-tractor trailer and, huh. and moving on to another town. Now, when you were a joint, just be honest with me, all those games are rigged, right? The no. balloons and all that. No. It's a scam. No, it's not no? a scam. There are three different categories one is you'll always win. It's real easy to win. Yeah. But the prize is crappy. <laughs> okay. The prize literally costs them two yeah. cents. That's how they suck you in. That's so it's, yeah, it doesn't, yeah. And you go, yeah, I could do that. And yeah, you can. Here's your prize. It's, <laughs> it's a, a two cent prize. Good for you. Uh, and then there's one that, oh, the prize is better. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, it could be difficult. You'd have to spend some money. Tossing yeah. the coins, you know, something like that. Uh, tossing the ring on the bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are the ones that are nearly impossible to get, to do, uh, but the prizes are big. If okay. you happen to get that <laughs> crazy, you're lucky. You're going to yeah. have to spend 20 bucks to just get a, a, a decent <laughs> shot at, you know, something. Yeah. And then you get a decent prize. Well, a decent prize is like what? Uh, uh, they could, uh, you know, a dollar they, stuffed bear. No, or no, no. In 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 back yeah. in the day, I, they used to you know give away transistor radios. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Things That's like that. Bad. Things you That's can actually use. But you're spending twenty, twenty five, thirty dollars, uh, and you realize <laughs> I could have bought uh, in those days. I could have bought a transistor radio for like four or five dollars, and now I'm spending twenty five dollars yeah. to get this cheap transistor what radio. What a bargain! Yeah. <laughs> well, you had some harrowing moments throughout this trip with your brother across the country. Um, at one point, apparently, you were even a murder suspect. What was that about? Well, in the winter of 76, we got jobs in Daytona Beach, Florida. Um, and uh, we worked at a Hawaiian in We worked at a, a Polynesian restaurant. And lots of fun. Good friends there. Um, but the 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 head chef was a guy named Peter Wong, uh, 
And Peter was a miserable SOB. <laughs> he was just a horrible, horrible person. And so everybody would talk about how we would do away and kill Peter Wong. You know, he'd chop him up in his Mugu guy, Peter, and uh, in his cook him in his walk and serve him on some. I mean, he was just he was just horrible. He hated every guy. Love the girls. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had every waiter had a female partner to work with. And so the deal basically became, listen, I'll do anything. I'll do all the side jobs. You just handle Peter in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. You just, Because we won't get anywhere if we had to do it. Yeah. So, and you handled him, apparently. <laughs> well, apparently. So he was a, a kind of a braggadocio kind of guy, a little man with a with a big swagger. And he used to carry a wad of money with him, and they used to play dice in the back in the kitchen and things like that. And he'd smoke and he'd throw down the money. Well, apparently um, someone lured him away from uh, the dog track one night and uh, clubbed him and put him in the back of a car upon which where he died. This is right at the end of the season, the tourist season. My brother and I had finished. We put in our notice. It was the end of the job. We got on our motorcycles and took off again. Oh, no sooner, suspicious timing. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> no sooner did we leave than the police came into the Hawaiian Inn where we worked and said, uh, anybody here talk about hurting or killing Peter Wong? I'm like, yeah, we kind of all did. You know, <laughs> anybody who's not here anymore who talked about, it. well, the Cranston boys, where are they? They're on their motorcycles. They left about a week ago. Interesting. <laughs> Apparently, now my cousin told us that we there was an APB put out for our arrest, or at least questioning, to to this murder. Um, but in the interim, they they discovered fingerprints and they realized. Oh. They, they found a suspect, and it was some hooker who had some really? other guy waiting. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> so, but okay. That's, but, but, yeah, it's, it was so – it, we, we didn't know we were murder suspects. That's the oh, thing. Oh, you didn't realize No, we didn't fact. realize. We had, we had taken <laughs> off. <laughs> we were like yeah. – oh, okay. No, no, we didn't know. Okay, so it was a hooker. You, did, you didn't suddenly go Walter White or that, something that, on That's the guy. story I'm sticking okay, with. Okay, I'm, I'm going to say it's smart. a hooker. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as I mentioned, this was really, I think, a seminal moment in your life, this road trip, um, what did you discover about yourself on that road trip? I think I had to leave California because I knew I wasn't going to be a police officer. And I thought, I, I, I like this acting, but mm-hmm. I really have to get serious about this. Do I think I could really make it? Can I be good at this? I don't know. And I, instead of continuing on with two more years of college, I, f- I finished the two years I was at a junior college, and then thought, I think I need to get away and just think about this a second, Mm -hmm. you know. And so that's what I did, and my brother was kind of in the same situation. So we took off, and we were gone for two years. And in in those two years, uh, I had an epiphany. I had a moment of absolute clarity that uh, I was at a, a rest stop in the Blue Ridge Parkway Virginia, beautiful area. It was pouring rain. And if you're on a motorcycle, it can be dangerous. And this is way before GPS. So we didn't know how close we were to the next town. Could have been 50 miles, could have been five miles. Oh, yeah. We're not sure. (laughs) So we stopped at a picnic place and there was a slab of concrete, four posts, a roof, and a picnic table. And that was it. And um, there we stayed for six nights because it never stopped raining. Wow. And it almost felt like you were incarcerated because you really couldn't leave yeah. safely. Yeah, what are you gonna so do? in that time, I, I was reading a, a book of plays and it was wonderful how it took me away and and it passed the time and I was able to to imagine what the set would be like or what the story would be like. And, and I had this epiphany that this really helped me pass the time incredibly well. I think I should try this. I'm going to try, and this is the, the credo that I developed and lived by, I'm going to try to attempt something that I love and hopefully become good at, as opposed to doing something I was good at but not in love with. 
And how long was it between that epiphany that you had and your first big break as an actor once you committed to doing that? Um, that was, I was about 21 years old when that happened. And I had another half a year or so of trying to make some money in, in warm Florida and then took off in the summer of 78 and took our time coming back. And so I was about 23 when I got my uh, Screen Actors Guild card and started working. But I was 25 when I started working regularly. And ever since I was 25, I haven't done anything but act in, in my life. I'm 61 now. So you achieved that dream of being able to support yourself yeah. as an actor. Yeah, that was my... That's cool. To this day, that is my my proudest professional accomplishment. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with actor Brian Cranston when we come back in just a moment. I got to tell you, folks, I've been eating extremely well lately thanks to HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun, so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices like myself to seasoned home cooks short on time. They source the freshest ingredients delivered right to your doorstep in a recyclable insulated box for free, and they measure everything to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. They even employ two full-time registered dietitians who review each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. HelloFresh is now offering light fall meals, and they've just introduced breakfast options, all for less than $10 a meal. I've been making these delicious meals from HelloFresh for several months now, and I'm so excited about it that I even ordered HelloFresh for my parents. They're empty nesters now, and my poor mom doesn't need to cook for an army anymore and deal with a big kitchen mess. So the quick and easy recipes from HelloFresh with their pre-portioned ingredients work perfectly for them. And if you're a family who likes to cook together, it's a great bonding experience, something you can do together with your spouse or your kids. Or even if you're a total amateur in the kitchen like me, you don't have to live on takeout or fast food. You can prepare delicious restaurant-quality meals in no time. This week, we made HelloFresh's buttered-up steak with roasted potatoes and garlicky green beans. The sirloin steak was really good quality, the kind that you would get from a family butcher you really trust. Tender, not too fatty, had great flavor. The green beans and potatoes were fresh and tasty, and it actually took us less than 30 minutes with no hassle and very little cleanup. So give HelloFresh a try, and you're going to be glad that you did. In fact, you can even get $30 off your first week of deliveries by visiting HelloFresh.com and entering KICK30 when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com and promo code KICK30 for $30 off your first week. Now, just to give you a sampling of the kind of meals HelloFresh offers, some of their upcoming menus include spiced Dijon salmon with apple arugula salad and couscous, Or how about honey-glazed pork tenderloin with sweet potatoes and green beans? I can't wait for that one. And if you want to get in on those great meals too, go to HelloFresh.com and enter our special promo code KICK30 when you subscribe to get $30 off your first week of deliveries. One more time, that's HelloFresh.com and KICK30 at checkout for $30 off your first week. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll live to cook. Hello, Fresh. Get cooking. And now, back to the podcast. One of my favorite moments of yours, I'm a big Seinfeld fan, and you played, of course, the dentist, Tim Watley. How did you land that role? Just through a regular audition. Mm-hmm. I happened to do something. Jerry was in the audition for the callback, and, and I made him laugh. And boy, that's that's... Yeah. That's it. When you can make Jerry laugh, that was fantastic. And so, you know, being on the set of Seinfeld um, was like going to comedy boot camp. Oh, I'll bet. With Larry, Larry David, David and, and Jerry are geniuses. And, and I got to tell you, uh, Jason Alexander, Julia and Michael, mm-hmm. they're just phenomenally talented people. And, and I was able to be on the set um, and watch them. I would watch them do every other scene 
the scenes that I wasn't in, as well as, of course, when I was. But um, it was a great learning experience for me and a great confidence booster and um, so much fun. And, in fact, it uh, comes full circle now. I, I, I did a, a, an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm that'll start airing in really? October. Oh, and, with the new uh, season. Wow. Yeah, with the new season. Oh, that's awesome. So I was I was really pleased and 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 I've told Larry that and I've told Jerry that. I mm-hmm. said you guys helped shape me because it it is probably the the most classically designed and constructed and effective comedy ever. Yeah, I think that somewhere I heard that you said that uh Larry David doesn't necessarily laugh but he recognizes comedy when he yes, sees it. Yeah, he doesn't often laugh but he 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 can identify uh, what when something really works yeah. or when it doesn't. Uh, Larry and Jerry and, and other comedians, they've, they've heard mm-hmm. everything and they can feel, they can feel if someone's trying to make them laugh. And mm-hmm. that's usually when you don't laugh. Yeah. Um, but so when someone's naturally funny or, or is able to have a sense of ease about themselves. And that's something that, that I've had to learn is to, relax into it mm-hmm. so that the comedy can come out naturally as opposed to trying to conjure something or force something out. Yeah. It's it. You're watching, you know, genius happen and, yeah. and you see Jerry do the same thing, how yeah. he can craft a joke or if it's not working, realize uh, that maybe the structure was off mm-hmm. and he'll backpedal and then, Real, you know, reconstruct it and go. Oh, I know what I, I forgot. This connective piece and this has to go in there, and now it works. And it's like, yeah. wow, <laughs> it's like building a, a skyscraper. You know, they it, you they have yeah. their own blueprints in their heads, and they're referring back to it. And they have such a, a you know a wealth of history behind their work as comedians. Another great comedy, of course, Malcolm in the Middle. Mm. Probably my favorite scene is the bee suit or the bee oh, scene. Yeah. You're covered in bees. I always assumed that that was a CGI effect, but you were really covered in bees? Yeah, it's like 75,000 bees. Jesus. They keep telling me there's different amounts. I don't know how many. I'd forgotten how many. But I was completely covered. There was probably two to three inches of bees on me. Uh, thick. And... And it was the the process in which they, you know, the beekeeper was able to do that was fascinating to me. And I was surprised at how relaxed I was wearing a suit of bees. Um, and I got stung twice. Yeah. But I realized something very important in life, that when you're wearing bees, you shouldn't be surprised if you get stung by a bee. <laughs> and the other thing is... A bee sting really isn't that painful at all. Really? It's, no, it's just, it's a little huh. prick. What's painful to us is the surprise. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Ah, you know, because okay. you didn't expect it. Okay. But I'm That's wearing bees. <laughs> so when, when, when I got stung, it was like, oh, I got, and, and bees are wonderful creatures. Yeah. They will. And they're dying. Yeah. Really. You got to protect them. <laughs> Yeah. Um, if the bees go, we go. Yeah, that's what everyone says. It is true. And the, there's no pollination going on. And if without pollination, we can't survive. Yeah, I have to say that you're the first person that I've ever heard say the phrase wearing bees. Wearing bees. <laughs> that's a new one for me. Where is wearing bees. Well, after Malcolm in the Middle, I'm assuming that you were probably getting a lot of offers for similar dad roles, and then the script for Breaking Bad landed in your lap. What did you think when you first read that first script? Oh, that's brilliant. You know, Vince Gilligan crafted a best drama pilot I've ever read. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it was just I only knew that he wanted to take a character from good to bad mm-hmm. in that general sense, um, as he fondly put it. I want to turn a, a character from Mister Chips to Scarface, <laughs> and uh, it's like okay, um, that sounded fascinating to me. I said, "You think it'll work?" He goes, "I have no idea." You know, he's from <laughs> Virginia. He's a sweet yeah. sounding man, and. I have no idea. I don't even know if they'll let me try. You know, well, well, let's try it. Heck, what that must heck? have given you a lot of confidence as an actor. No, but you know, that's that's one thing that I I realized 
um, about 23, four years ago to let go. Mm-hmm. Only pursue things that you, that resonate within you, mm-hmm. that mean something to you, that have um, an artistic integrity in the writing mm-hmm. and pursue that. If you can identify well-written material and go after that, I have yet to see it fail. It fail me. Now, the project, if it's a movie, it may not be a box office hit. It may not, it may be a play that closes early. Who knows? But personally, and I have a, a high standard to meet uh, that I placed for myself, it's personally much more satisfying, hmm. much more satisfying. I mean, I have to assume that there was a lot of pressure on you guys as well, because that was when AMC was still pretty new to original content. And I think that that was the first show after Mad Men it is. that they tried out. Was there added pressure on you and Vince Gilligan to deliver on this show? No, I mean, I, I, as an actor, you're, you're, you go in and you approach it the way you'd approach any character. Mm-hmm. All you can do is your best. And then it's there's so many factors, there's so many elements that go into making what we call a, a, a hit show. Uh, and, and a large dose of that is luck. So, um, you know, Mad Men was the lead for me. I, I was in love with this script that Vince wrote, Breaking Bad. And I contacted AMC and I said, I... Are you really going to treat this with the respect? It are you going to support it? Uh, Rob Sorcher, who was the head of production at the time there at AMC, said, "Let me send you something. Watch this, and then we'll talk." Okay. And he sent me Matt Weinert's pilot for Mad Men, which had not aired yet. And I watched that thing, and I went, "Holy crap! This is exceptional." And became a fan of Mad Men, but also felt, well, if this is the quality that Mm -hmm. they're pursuing, uh, I think we're in good hands. And AMC turned out to be just a wonderful partner. Very creative uh, support there. They don't, uh, you know, notes that really are genuinely helpful as opposed to... Just, just kind ego. of, yeah, yeah, it was like, just to have something yeah. to say. You it was know? really, really a good, good group of people there. Now, when you set out to build this character of Walter White, what was the image in your head of who this man was when you started out? Um, you know, what was interesting. I always, I always try to find the emotional core of a character. And once mm-hmm. I feel that that is rooted in my soul body, um, then I can, move on from there. Like for instance, with Hal from Malcolm in the middle, he was, his emotional core was fear. He was afraid of everything, afraid of losing his job, afraid of being a bad husband, a parent, afraid of spiders, afraid of heights, afraid of, you know, he was just fearful of everything. He was very insecure. And that was a great handle for me to go from there. Mm-hmm. Everything I just everything was through that fear filter, and so it created opportunities for a lot of honesty and and comedic uh, hijinks, for <laughs> lack of a better term. And I was having trouble with Walter White finding his his emotional core, and then I I started to realize I think I'm having trouble finding it because. He doesn't even know how he feels. And then I started looking into depression because what I thought with Walter White is that he was in depression and that therefore his emotions were calloused over, that he wasn't in touch with his emotions. Mm -hmm. He was numb. Yeah. And, and so I started looking at it from that standpoint and I was, what I got from some preliminary research was something that was very useful. To me, the way I uh, processed it was that there were two basic, this is a macro definition from a layman, but two basic manifestations of of depression. One was um, extroverted, where it, it in the form of anger mm-hmm. and resentment and and aggression. Mm-hmm. That, like the president. Yeah, well, okay, <laughs> like a president. 
So there's there's outwardly blaming people for mm-hmm. for your lack of achievement. Yeah. Like, that son of a bitch. He's you know <laughs> da, da, da. And then there's the the one that makes you cave and go inward and become a shadow of yourself and unrecognizable to. And it was like, <gasps> that's Walter White. He was invisible to himself and he didn't know how he felt anymore. And it wasn't until the diagnosis and his decision that that volcano blew and all of a sudden he spews his, his, uh, his emotions and, and all over the place. He was unaccustomed to, to categorizing how, where I should send my feelings. So it just blew up and got messy. Well, when you take Walter White from this limp shell of a man to this very, very dark place, what were some of the real life experiences that you tapped into? That's part of an actor's toolbox is to be able to willingly and the more you work, it comes more easily as well. Tap into your own real life experiences. What? When did I last feel rage, or jealousy, or greed, or avarice, or or hubris? Whatever, whatever the feeling is, you have to be willing to be vulnerable and show uh, sometimes ugly sides of of your real humanity. And then there are times when you can show good qualities as well. So depending on what the character needs at any given time, you need to go into that emotional, um, you know, chest and pull it out and, and, and there you go and you, you present it. And I'm just been doing this for a long, long time. So it's, it comes more readily to me and I'm perfectly willing to allow myself not to look good mm-hmm. in the eyes of someone's judgment and, you know, uh, I, I heard another credo early on. I don't know who it's credited to, but you're only as good as you dare to be bad <laughs> is is something I live by, too. Yeah. And th- that, that helped me say, OK, that means I need to take chances. Mm-hmm. I need to be risky in in my in my moves here as far as developing character. So. Well, it probably hinders you a lot as an actor if you're not willing to be honest in that sense. Yeah. You then reduce the available um, character of who you are Mm -hmm. by a a pretty significant percentage. Well, there's a great piece of advice in here that you give actors, and it kind of goes a little bit against probably what most actors starting out figure their priorities are. Um, You say, get your house in order, get your personal life, your health, your relationships all in order. That's your foundation. If your home life is sane, it allows you to go insane with your work. And that makes a lot of sense to me, because how can you fully invest yourself in a character if you have all this bullshit to deal with in the back of your head at home or at your other job or with friends or whatever? Yeah, Yeah. I don't necessarily ascribe to that old Adam axiom about, um, you know, artists have to suffer. Mm -hmm. But I do ascribe to the belief system that you need to be willing to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And so it's when I talk to younger actors, I said, what are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to give up so that you can be available to succeed in your art? And it should be significant. It should be Mm -hmm. everything except my, my relationships. And it's like, yeah. So if you reduce all the bullshit in your life down to what's really important and hold on to that and nurture that, whether you're a father or, you know, or a husband or whatever your relationship may be, um, then great. Nurture that. Simplify your life and spend the rest of that time not going to parties, not going on vacation, not playing golf, Working, mm-hmm. just working, studying human behavior, because that's the na- an actor's work. Studying human behavior and being able to replicate that when needed. Yeah, and you talk a little bit about your process of studying people when you were in a mall or wherever. Mm-hmm. Is it harder to do that now that you're recognized everywhere? Yeah, yeah it's impossible, actually. Yeah. Um, once the observer becomes the observed, uh, it the, the behavior changes, 
And so, yeah, it's it's I I I had to do most of my observing either from afar, or in the in my 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 previous life, you know, fifteen twenty years ago. Yeah, you do talk about fame and knowing the exits to every room when you go into a restaurant or your wife sort of feeling like a plus one whenever you go to an event. Or I'm sure Mm -hmm. you get people coming up to you for a selfie and they ask her to hold the camera. Right. Then they they treat your your poor wife as a non-person, really. Yes, but I I think it has to be put in perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, No one should feel sorry for Brian Cranston. Uh, They really shouldn't. I mean, my life is, is... Exceptional. I mean, it, the way I've been very lucky. I've worked hard, but uh, um, health and and safety and 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 uh, a success in in the thing I really love to do. Um, so, with that prefaced, saying that you know it comes with the territory. I never I never had those daydreams about becoming famous. I just wanted to be a working actor. I wanted to make my living as an actor. And once I achieved that, everything else was gravy to me. Hmm. So when everything exploded during and after Breaking Bad, I was not really accustomed to how to how to behave, hmm. how to how to treat and how do I reconcile celebrity and fame? It's an odd thing. You can't train for it. You just don't know what it's like. Yeah. Um, so uh, fortunately, I had some some mentors in that. Um, Tom Hanks is a as a friend and a and a just a not just a brilliant actor, but a really lovely man, really good person. And I watched over the last thirty years how he handled himself, in and his decorum and 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 how he was in public. Um, and there's a, a, a polite cord, cordiality and, and um, gregariousness, and yet he protects himself, and he must. And I learned that from him, how he is able to keep himself you know, intact and yet still greet uh, public in, in a warm way and and he does it really brilliantly. He knows how to do. And I, I just kind of learned from him and and how to behave. And it's and it's worked. It's worked well. But that being said, I I, I crave. Um, sometimes I I really crave anonymity. I, I'd love to be able mm-hmm. to, be someplace and not be recognized. Um, it's it's an odd thing. It's as if, if I can give it an analogy, just imagine if you've ever had a surprise party thrown for you. If you've ever had a surprise party yeah. thrown for you, just imagine you're that person <laughs> who's thrust in the middle yeah. and all this attention is blasting toward you. That's what it's like. Yeah. Every day. Every day. Wow. So you have to navigate through that kind of attention Mm-hmm. And yes, it's lovely when people are saying nice things about your work and they, it is great. And yet it takes up a lot of energy to deal with all that. And sometimes you just don't want to be the center of attention. You yeah. just don't. Yeah, I can't even imagine. And at some point in here, you said that you find yourself sitting across from old people and talking to old people because they're less likely to know you from Breaking Bad. Yeah, that's right. You can have a, a relatively normal conversation I, with an 80-year-old. I I am thrilled when I meet someone who doesn't know me. I am. I really am. Because I know I'm going to get an absolute honest exchange, where whatever we may be talking about, the weather, traffic, whatever. It's there's something uh, we're on the same level, and I really like being there. Well, before we go, you've got this new movie, Last Flag Flying, coming out soon. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Very proud of it, and it will come out in November. And Richard Linklater wrote it and directed, and it stars uh, Steve Carell, myself, and Lawrence Fishburne, and it is in the same milieu as a movie in the 70s called The Last Detail. And um, three guys who were in the service who shared an experience and have a task to achieve. 
and it's a male bonding movie, but women will really love my wife was just weeping when she saw this and laughing. It's really? very funny. It's very honest and real. It's three old friends who hadn't seen each other in 30 years. And all of a sudden they're back together and they, you know, the, the, the aggression is there that kind of stimulates <laughs> competition amongst themselves and <laughs> their old ways, but they can't do things the way they used to. And, <laughs> You know, so it, it was it was a tremendous Great. amount of fun to do, and uh, so last flag flying. Okay, comes yeah, out I'm November. a big Richard Linkletter fan, yeah. so I'm looking forward to that. It's really good. And your daughter's an actress too, she right? Is, yeah. How's that going? It's fine. She's done done well. She's worked quite a bit coming out of uh, USC uh, theater major, and um, and she's really really good. She's really good, and she's very passionate about it. And as a father, that's the only thing that I really hope for. And that's the only thing any parent hopes for, is that your child is passionate about what they want to do, what they're interested in. Well, it sounds like you might have the makings of an acting dynasty like the Barrymores one day. (laughs) Well, again, the book is called A Life in Parts, and I highly recommend it. Brian Cranston, thanks so much for talking with me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Brian Cranston for joining me on the podcast. His book, A Life in Parts, is available now in paperback as well as hardback and audiobook. Last Flag Flying, which stars Brian Cranston, Steve Carell, and Lawrence Fishburne, opens in theaters November 3rd. And follow Brian Cranston on Twitter at, at Brian Cranston. Be sure to subscribe to Kick Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kickass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.